This morning we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and uh, this is a kind of a small chapter, it's only 20 verses, but we're going to just get through uh, the first half of the first 12 uh, this morning, and we want to look at Paul's model and his motives for ministry. And uh, most of Paul's letters were written, as you look throughout the New Testament, they were written in response to either an attack that was being made against him, or he was writing his letters to correct some error that they had wandered off to in a local situation in one of the churches that he had founded. And sometimes when you're reading his letters, it's almost like you're listening to one end of the phone conversations. Have you ever had that opportunity? You know, maybe somebody's in the house talking on the phone and you're hearing just one side of it and you don't know what the other person's saying. Well, that's kind of what it's like when you read some of his letters. And even here this morning, we don't know exactly where we kind of generalize what the reason why he responded and causes him to kind of rear up in defense. But we don't know what really prompted the response exactly. He doesn't mention that. But he moves in chapter 2 from chapter 1, which is really singing the the Thessalonians' praise and God's salvation of them and their election and how that's a sure thing and all that. But then all of a sudden he, he seems to get very defensive. And he moves into this direct defense of his conduct as an apostle and as a minister there while he was in Thessalonica. And apparently both his, his motives and his methods, his model of ministry, was being uh, attacked. It came under fire. And some of the people in Thessalonica and in other cities as well that he went wanted to discredit him and his ministry. And if they could do that, therefore they could discredit the churches. And the matter is critical for if Paul and his ministry can be repudiated than the very foundations of the church, this new church here in Thessalonica. And really, by that means everywhere else that where Paul put his name uh, can be undermined. And so we can be grateful for these attacks against Paul in one way because they really um, give us information and they, we can draw a lot of principles out of them and we can learn more about his methods and his, his uh, motives for reaching out in evangelism and um, why he's defending his ministry in the way that he is. And um, it's, a, it's a really a practical reality. And, and it's a practical reality and an application for us that grows out of the heat of conflict. You know, none of us like conflict. None of us like to be arguing and get, you know, bickering back and forth, whatever. Uh, nobody likes disunity. Um, an effective pastor and an effective leader in, in a church seeks to do what God uh, approves them to do, what God tells them to do. And shepherding isn't just a, a job. It's not just something that you just pull out of the thin air and say, oh, gee, I want to do this. Uh, you know, I want to minister for Christ somewhere. Uh, it's a commitment. It's, a, it's really a commitment to serving God which envelops your whole entire life and lifestyle. Not just you, your family, your loved ones, everything. And in, and in the church community, the emphasis is on relationships more than roles. We don't honor people because of titles that they hold. You know, uh, we, we want to honor each other because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? And so we don't, we don't necessarily lift people up. That's not the purpose, and that's not what Paul is doing here. 
Um, and even though he was uniquely gifted, the apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, listen what he says. Even though he's, he's the apostle Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament, for goodness sakes, right? God used him in an incredible way. But here's what he said concerning his own ministry. He says, who is adequate for these things? Who is adequate? And the, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. <laughs> no one is adequate for ministry. He realized that no man could effectively discharge this immense obligation of spiritual leadership by his own human wisdom, by his own human strength, by his effort. He knew only God would be able to provide the power to be the apostle, to be the leader, the spiritual leader that he needed to be. And, and the apostle Paul struggled. He struggled in his flesh. We, we know that in Romans 7, right? It tells us, boy, I want to do certain things. Why is it that I, I, the things I want to do, I don't do? And then he says, the things I'm struggling with, the things I shouldn't be doing, that's what I end up doing. How many of us are in that same ball? We all are, right? Every day we're faced with things. We know what the right thing is to do, but we're tempted to do something wrong. Why do we keep on doing the wrong thing? We all have that tension in our lives. Paul was no different. But God gave him graciously. He gave him suffering, and he gave him pain to continually keep him in a state of humbleness before God, to make him more dependent, not less dependent, on divine power. You know, what's interesting is sometimes you'll have young men who come out of seminary and years of training in theology, and they come out, and they come into a brand new church, and their mindset is, hey, I got this. <laughs> I got this. I mean, I just went to the best seminary in the world. I, you know, I got degrees coming out of my ears. I got this. And inevitably, what happens is they destroy the church for that very reason. They think they got this, and God has to humble them. And maybe by the second, third, or fourth church, they finally figure it out. Uh, I don't got this. God, I need you. Help me, right? Every week that goes by, if we're involved in ministry, we need to be on our knees before God, asking him, begging him for his help, for his assistance, for his divine power, for us to carry out what he's called us to do. Well, here, Paul is assailed by false teachers. He's attacked. They, they come at him from every side. And, you know, that's really a sign that someone is a, a faithful teacher, a faithful shepherd, is that they are being assaulted. They are being attacked. Um, people are trying to impugn his character. They're challenging his authority and the authority of the message which he brings. And so this opening statement that we're going to read here in a moment, here in chapter 2, is really Paul's defense of his ministry. I'm sure this didn't come easy to Paul. I mean, how many of us want to be on the defense all the time? We don't like to be on the defense. You know, we don't want to have to defend our actions or our thoughts or, or what we're doing all the time. But Paul had to, continually. And the opponents of his ministry actually were lying to this new church, this new church that he formed in this, this very populous city, Thessalonica, he started a church there, and he was only there for maybe, you know, maybe a month or two at the most. And then he had to move on. God moved him on. But these small group of believers, there wasn't a lot of them, they 
they were meeting there and they began to be lied to by people in the community concerning Paul's integrity, concerning Paul's sincerity. They hoped if they could ruin this new church by destroying their confidence in the person that God had used to start the church, they would win the battle. And it probably was a group of both unbelieving Jews and uh, pagan Gentiles because when Paul planted the church there in Thessalonica, guess what? That church had an effect on the community in which it was. They had an effect. And, um, you know, people started to get saved. People's lifestyles started to change. They started to realize, wow, these pagan gods and all the stuff the Gentiles do, that's not appropriate. And the message that the Jews has given us is, is, is not really measuring up to what, what Paul said either. So both of those camps, the unbelieving Jews and the pagan Gentiles, both began to feel attrition because of, of what Paul's message did to the community. God began to work in the hearts and lives of people, and therefore it affected change in the culture of Thessalonica. Well, some people didn't like it. It's a similar situation to one that's later addressed even in 2 Corinthians. And they, they had a very negative response to the coming of the Messiah and to his redemptive work. They didn't want this gospel message being spread everywhere. They were fighting against it. And the attacks on the truth of salvation by grace and grace alone through Christ alone escalated. And guess who was the main target? Paul because he was the founder here of this church. And since the very beginning, there's, there's always been false spiritual leaders. There's been false teachers. There's been charlatans within and without the church. And so it was easy for Paul's you know, foes to go to this small church in Thessalonians and say, oh, where's, where's your leader now? He's just like all these other guys that come and set up their little tent and, and take your money, and then they leave town. Paul's no different. And they started telling him that. You know, he's just lining his pockets with, with, your, with your goods and with your money, and he's just in it for his own personal gain and wealth and prestige. And they thought if they attacked Paul hard enough and long enough, this church would fall. But in spite of even the purity that was found in Paul's life, he went out of his way to make sure that people didn't think of him that way. The enemies of the gospel were having some success. They were having some success in convincing the Thessalonians that Paul and his companions were men of wicked intentions, you might say. Nothing more than just self-seeking fraudulent teachers, spiritual teachers of the time. And so it was as, as distasteful probably as it was for Paul, he had to defend himself. He had to. And he answered his detractors directly and, and very concisely for the sake of the truth. So I, I would ask you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we want to read verses 1 through 12. You can stand in honor of God's word, and, and we'll read this and then pray, and then you can have a seat. Um, Paul writes there in verse 1 of chapter 2, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but we... But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. 
not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you, brothers, for, rem- for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a, a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Father, we ask you to bless this word now to our hearts. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. We're going to deal with five things over the next two weeks. We'll probably get through the first two today, maybe, in these, five, in these 12 verses. There's five things that stand out, and they're, they're, they speak to Paul's motive and his model of ministry. And the first two opening verses there, for you yourselves know, it's interesting when you read through this, this uh, letter, if you go through and just highlight how many times you find those words, uh, you yourselves know or you know. It's over and over again. He's showing them evidence of something. But it tells us here, the first point there in your outline is about the pressures that reveal my, uh, right motives. The pressures that reveal right motives. The one thing we need to remember, beloved, is that we're all accountable to God. Amen? Amen. Um, we don't know each other's motives when we do something. We don't know it. You don't know mine. I don't know yours. You don't know if I'm up here with a motive of just because I like to stand in front of people and make them listen to me. I don't know if you're here just because you know that I'd be, just be disappointed if you weren't here. So I just want to come and, and please the pastor and sit here and listen to him ramble on about something. I don't know your motive, but you don't know mine either. And that's why we all need to submit, right? We all need to submit We all need to be accountable to God. We all need to be understanding of the fact that we have to place ourselves under God's word. And we let God's word do the judging. The Bible tells us that the word of God is what? Sharper than any two-edged sword. That it's able to pierce to the dividing point of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. It's able to divide all that. God's word can sort all that out. It's a discerner. It's a critic of the intents and the thoughts of our own hearts. And so we don't need to turn to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. We need to turn to God's word when we have to discern something. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, the Bible says this, do not, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, Paul writes. Who will bring to light, listen, the things now hidden in darkness, And will disclose 
the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. See, the whole subject of here in in chapter 2 is really dealing with motives. It's dealing with Paul's motives. Why is he doing what he's doing? Have you ever had somebody ask you, why are you doing that? What are they doing? They're asking your your motive. Why why are you doing what what you're doing? And, you know, I mean, the truth of the matter is you don't know. Neither do they. Only God does. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is what? Deceitful. It's deceitful above all things. It says it's desperately sick. It's evil, the human heart. And Jeremiah says, who can understand it? The idea is no one. Did you ever hear somebody say, oh, that, that young man or that, that, that woman or that man, they have such a wonderful heart. Su- they have such a good heart. I want to go, no, they don't. <laughs> Their heart is desperately evil and sick, according to God's word. And they don't even understand it, let alone us. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. See, God knows us, beloved, even when we don't know ourselves. He knows. He always knows. And that's what we have to do is we have to come before the word of God and we have to say, you know what, Lord, show me, teach me, help me to clean my act up, penetrate my motives. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Help me understand what is right versus what is wrong. And so we want to look at the pressures that reveal the right motives. Also, we, just to give you the quick outline here for the next two weeks, in verses three to six, we're going to see the problems that influence the right motives. Verses 7 to 9, the priorities that reflect right motives. And then verse 10, the practices that demonstrate right motives. And 11 to 12, verses 11 to 12, the purpose that controls right motives. So let's start with the first one here, the pressure that reveals right motives. He says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi. Philippi is a little town which is north of Thessalonica. It's on this Ignatian Way, the Roman Appian Way is what it's called. And um, it's, it's a Roman colony there. And so it, it's, it's up there. And uh, Thessalonica, of course, is this major center. It's a major capital of, of Macedonia. It's a shipping port and all these people come there. And so that's why it was such a good opportunity for Paul to start a church there because he knew it was kind of at the crossroads of the world. Well, he says, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I want to show you two things here in these first two verses. You know, when pressure comes, a lot of times in our lives, you know, when we see somebody under a lot of pressure, what do we say? We're going to see what they're what? Made of, right? Now we'll see what this guy's made of. Whether it's a, it's a sporting event Right, if you're watching a football football game and you know the quarterback's down and everything's going to pot in the game and you know, well, the fourth quarter we're going to see what this guy's really made of. Is he going to hang in there or what's going to happen? And that's that's kind of the idea because a lot of times, frankly, when pressure comes, what happens? People drop out, right? They bomb out. They just they quit. They just say, I can't handle this. 
But, you know, when everything's great, when everything's going well, they're going, whoa, praise God. You know, it's so great to be a Christian. But then they run into a little difficulty in their life. They run into a little trial or, or maybe a burden or a little pressure. What happens? They, they lose it. Okay? They lose it. They begin to shake their fists at God. Why are you doing this to me? You know, I said I would, I would promise to serve you. Why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard? I mean, it's easy to get discouraged when pressure comes. It's very easy. It's very natural. It's normal. Um, it's, it's, it's easy to get discouraged when you're trying to share your faith with someone. And you know what? The person that you're trying to share your faith with finally just says, you know what? I don't like you. Stay away from me. <laughs> That's very discouraging. And you're working overtime trying to be, you know, trying to get this message of the gospel to them. And they don't even want to listen. They don't want to be around you. They don't like your person or your personality or your message. And they just come out and tell you. And your feelings are hurt. And we have a tendency to wear our, our emotions on our sleeve. And so we make our way back to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And eh, pray for me. You know, I'm under persecution. And going through a trial. But a lot of time, most of the time, I would say, the problem is there's a wrong motive involved. There's a wrong motive controlling our hearts. And that's why God says pressure will reveal whether you have the right motives or not. And there are two things here. In verse 1, we want to first look at as to the blessing which such ministry might bring. I mean, would you agree that being involved in ministry is a blessing? I mean, the idea that God would include us in this whole program and plan that he has laid out before us. I mean, he could have very easily said, oh, you know what, Steve, you're saved. Boom, tab, and you go. Now, maybe I would want that, right? I mean, I would, I mean I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But no, God says, no, I'm going to leave you down here as, as one of my folks, and you're going, to, you're going to do this for me. And just like he did to you, you know, he carves out a part of life and says, here, this is the ministry that I've called you to. And it's very important to understand that. And there's blessings that come along with that. And that's why he says there, for you yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you, what does he say? Was not in vain. It was not in vain. What is he saying? He said it wasn't a failure. It wasn't a failure. See, that's important to understand that even though there's pressure, even though there's conflict, even though there's afflictions and difficulties, guess what? God can be right there in the midst of all that and bless us as a result of it. God can bring that which appears to be a complete mess, a complete failure. He can bring something good out of that for his glory. He really does. But we need to focus on that. So many times, what do we focus on? We focus on the mess, right? That's what we focus on. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Remember, he's writing here to the, these, this church at Philippi, which is a small little church, not far from Thessalonica. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now notice, you've got to be careful here. He doesn't say work for <laughs> your own salvation. We don't work for our salvation. Amen? For by grace we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not of good works, lest any man should boast. 
We can't work our way to heaven. And there's a lot of people today that think they can. They think if they fill the pew on Sunday morning, well, that's a good positive thing. That'll get me to heaven. You know, if I get baptized, that's another positive. Oh, maybe if I give a little more to the missionaries, that's good. No, God's not interested in that when it comes to your salvation. So he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen what he says in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And up to that point, we're going, oh, yummy, yummy. This is so wonderful. Happy, happy in Jesus. This is a great message. And we forget to keep reading. Because in verse 14, he applies what he just told you. I don't know if we like the application as much, frankly. What's he say in verse 14, Philippians 2? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Oh, God. Are you serious? Notice it says do all. It doesn't say, oh, do some things. No, it says do all things without grumbling or disputing. Uh, One writer I was reading said, you know what? Paul must have never been involved in any kind of Christian organization in America, clearly. Because everybody knows, you get a group of Christians together, in, in that whole culture, what is there? There's a bunch of complaints, and people are upset with each other, and, and it ends up in just grumbling and disputing. Why is that? So why does Paul tell us this? Well, in verse 15, the next verse, he says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor. There's that word, in vain. In other words, it's not a failure. It's the exact words almost that Paul is using back in Thessalonians First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves, brother, knowing that our coming to you was not in vain. What's Paul saying? Were there pressures? Definitely. Were there trials? Death. Were there troubles? Yes. Were there afflictions? Of course. But it was not a failure. It was not a failure. Because Why? Because there was evidence that God had worked in some of the Thessalonians' hearts. That God had worked in some of the people in this Thessalonian church. They had come to know the Lord. They had left the worship of pagan gods. They had left the religious leaders in Judaism and they came to worship Christ. They got saved. They bowed their knee to Christ. It wasn't a large group of people. It was probably a pretty small church at this point. But guess what? God had planted his church there. And because God had planted it there, it wasn't a failure. He did a wonderful thing here in the midst of a lot of persecution, a lot of trouble, a lot of pressure. And so Paul is saying, don't think it was in vain that I came to you. Um, In in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, and then he says this, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, here it is, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's a wonderful thing to when you're ministering for the Lord, you know that, you know what, even though it may not be going the way you want it to, it's not in vain. It's not a failure. I mean, sometimes we have our eyes focused on the wrong things in life. We really do. 
And what do we see? All we see is failure. All we see is, oh, this, what's the use of this? I'm trying to pastor a little conservative church here in the Bay Area. Nobody comes. It's like, man, everybody's against you. It's like, wow. I mean, you can discourage yourself right out of a, out of a ministry really quick if you have your eyes on the wrong things. Because we don't see it as the Lord sees it, beloved. God works in ways that you or I don't even understand or can comprehend. It's hard. It's difficult. There's pressurized situations. But you know what? God uses those, just like he used them in Paul's life, in ways that we don't even realize, we don't even see. Just because things aren't going the way we want them to doesn't mean God is not on his throne anymore. It doesn't mean that he's not in charge. He's, he's still in charge, and he's doing exactly things that we don't even see according to his plan. And God uses this at times that we don't even understand, and, and frankly, sometimes we don't even remember when God uses this. We don't know what happens sometimes when we, we share Christ with someone, and we never see him again. We don't know what happens to that person. But God does. God knows what he's doing. Remember when I was younger, involved in youth ministry, had a, a teenager visit our youth group who was new, and he came up to me and he said, oh, do you remember me? I'm like, no, I don't. You know, I was like, who are you? you know, oh, you led me to the Lord when we were at youth camp one, one summer. Sorry, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> you know, sorry. Are you sure it was me? Yeah, it was you. And he described the time and everything. I had no idea. You know, I just don't, I don't even remember it. See, sometimes God uses in ways that he doesn't allow us to see. He knows what he's doing, and it may be in the midst of a lot of trouble, a lot of persecution, a lot of affliction. But God is doing his work. And what are we called to do? We're called to be what? Faithful. Just be faithful. That's all God asks from us. But the pressures here that reveal right motives, they don't always deal with the blessings of ministry, the blessings of ministry might bring, but they also deal with the boldness which such ministry might need. Look at verse 2. Not just the blessing, but look at the boldness. It says in verse 2, for But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I mean, up to this point, if we had experienced what Paul had experienced, most likely we would have quit. We would have said, hey, this isn't worth it. I mean, how many times you got to get beat up? How many times you got to be put in the stockade? Whipped, scourged, whatever, before you get the message. Do you know that boldness for the Lord is often developed in the midst of a lot of persecution, a lot of affliction? That's where the boldness really comes out. Sometimes we never see that, we don't understand that, until the pressure is so great, until the opposition is so strong, all of a sudden we feel ourselves filled with boldness. And we're thinking, where is that coming from? Turn over to Acts, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, and look at verse 29. Now this is the New 
church here in Acts. And they're dealing with Peter and John before the council and all this stuff is going on. And they're having a prayer meeting. Okay, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of pressure, a lot of persecution. That's always a good thing to do is pray in those times. Um, A lot of people think that Americans can't understand texts of scripture like this where there's persecution and things because they think, well, we live in a free country. You know, we don't really understand what it means to to come under persecution. Um, Let me tell you, that's quickly changing, my friends. (laughs) It's quickly changing. Thank God we can still meet in a building and we're not worried that someone's going to come in and chop our head off or something. But at the same time, there's a change going on in the culture of the United States of America. And there's a lot of hostility toward believers out there. There's a lot of hostility toward conservative think. There's a lot of hostility. You can see it on your TV. Attitudes in our culture are radically changing. And we may not be so prone to just keep our head in the sand and think, that, well, it's not happening here because it is. The truth of the matter is it's happening in more subtle ways. It's kind of like the frog in the pot, right? You put the frog in the cold water on the pot on the stove, guess what he's going to do? He's just going to hang out there. You turn the, the water up and pretty soon you have a boiling pot with a cooked frog and he doesn't even know it. That's what's happening to our country. And one day, I'm afraid we're going to wake up in the freedom that we now enjoy is going to be lost forever. So we need to be cognizant of the fact that this is happening even here. But look at what he says in Acts chapter 4, verse 29. He says, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all what? Boldness. Boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, verse 31... And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God, what? With boldness. If there's one thing believers need to be today is we need to be bold in our faith. We don't need to apologize. We don't need to buy into the whole message of You know, well, just don't offend anybody. The message of the cross itself is offensive, beloved. Now, we don't need to be jerks for Jesus. I'm not saying that. But at the same time, we have to have a boldness to our our ministries and to our words. Well, and this happens here in the midst of affliction. That's why he says, again, you see, that boldness often comes in the midst of a lot of pressure, a lot of affliction. And this is what happened. And this is after what happened at, at, at Philippi. And what happened there was just terrible. In verse 2 there, he kind of mentioned, he says, although we had already suffered, this is, we've already been through this, Paul's saying, and we've been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. That word shamefully treated means to be, you could say insulted, you could say mistreated. Hubrizo is, the, is the, the Greek word there, and it means to abuse It even has the connotation of using violence, reproach on someone. Uh, Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy in your New Testament there toward the back. 
2 Timothy, a couple pages to the right, if you're in 1 Thessalonians. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And look at verse 6. See, our motives are often challenged. They're, 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 they're developed, they're revealed in the midst of tremendous pressure and persecution. A lot of prophetic teachers today in the church are, are basically telling us that, you know what, persecution is coming. You better be ready. Persecution will come to our country. It will come to the church. I mean, it's all around the world right now. And I think God is going to use it to, to clean up some of the inadequate Christian commitments, really, that we have that are insufficient in love for the Lord. Maybe some persecution would help. Maybe it would cleanse out all the tares. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what we read in the Bible. Uh, First Tem- Timothy, or Second Timothy Sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Look at what it says in verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now remember, Paul is talking to his young disciple in the faith, his young son in the faith, Timothy. And he says, verse 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, verse 8, do not be ashamed about, of the testimony about our Lord, nor don't be ashamed about me, his prisoner, either. But share in suffering, he says, for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That's what we read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, our election in Christ. Verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Verse 11, which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. Look at what he says in verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words, Timothy. This is what he's telling him, that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Two times there he talks about suffering. Suffering for doing the right thing. It's obvious that Paul instructs his disciple in the faith that it's all, the ministry is just, oh, it's just, you know, heaven on earth. The ministry is just this wonderful time, Timothy. Wait, 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 just wait. You're just going to experience so much love and so many blessings. And oh, you're just going to be just blessed all the way to heaven. He doesn't tell him that. He says, guess what, Timothy? You know what you signed up for, pal? You signed up for suffering. You signed up for persecution. You signed up for pressure and affliction and tough times and difficult situations. But guess what? Through all that, God can use you. And through all that, you still need boldness. Don't be ashamed. Don't back down, Timothy. Don't back off. Don't shrink back just because you encounter a little pressure 
Instead, understand that God is going to use it. He's going to use it in your life and in your ministry for his glory and for his honor. And it will have a way of developing right motives in your heart for what you do in ministry. I mean, frankly, I believe that some of us need to to, to lose more. (laughs) We need to lose in life more. I mean, we're blessed incredibly in this country. And it's easy when you come out on the winning end of things, is it not? It's easy. But you know what? It's hard to lose. I don't know if anybody says, oh, I just want to lose in life. I just want to be a loser, you know, a loser. I, 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 I don't think people go around saying that. They don't want that. But it's not easy to go through times when you're, when you're stripped of all your expectations and it's kind of like you're at the bottom of a deep well looking up, wondering if there's any hope. But in the midst of all that, what does God do? God will purify your motives to make sure that you really have a heart for him. You have a sincerity in your love for him. That's what this passage is all about. It's going to get more and more penetrating. This is just kind of setting us up. This is what the Bible's doing. Sometimes the, the Bible sets us up. Uh, and that's what he's doing here in, in these first two verses. He's setting up the Thessalonians. He's saying, hey, look. You know what we went through. You know the intense affliction and stress and everything that we've been through in Philippi and other places. But it wasn't only in the midst of intense affliction, but secondly here, it's in the the midst of hostile atmosphere, a hostile atmosphere. And he points out to them, hey, this doesn't just happen in Philippi. It happened when we came to Thessalonica. They ran them out of town. And so he says there, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Look at those two words, much conflict. It's interesting, in the original language, the word is agony. Guess what we get the word? Agony. Agony. Strong opposition. Strong opposition. The same word is used in 2 Timothy, and I'll just read it for you. You don't have to turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, when Paul says, I have fought the good fight. Guess what that word is? Fought. It's agony. It's, it's tortuous. In Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul wants us to know that the Christian life is not some, you know, you don't just sit back on a a cloud and play the harp the rest of your life. It's a war. Every day, it's a battle. The good thing is, we win in the end. That makes it a little easier. It should, at least mentally. You know, if, and I've used this before, but if someone told me, you know, did you hear you know, uh, Mike Tyson, poor Mike Tyson, he's in the news again, right? He was on a flight, somebody was bugging him, and he just hammered him. He just turned around and hammered It looked like he was in, even in first class. And, you know, it showed the video of the poor guy. He looked like he was crying, you know, his head's all bumped up. But I often think, you know, here's Mike Tyson, incredible strong person, right? I mean, I wouldn't want to fight him. 
But you know what? I would. If someone said, you know what? I want you to fight Mike Tyson. I'll give you a million dollars if you fight Mike Tyson. Even if they did that, I'd say, no, no thanks. I don't need the humility. And I, don't want to, I, I value my life, right? But wait, wait, wait. There's more. In round three, you're going to win. You're going to knock Mike Tyson out. I guarantee it. Would I do it? Sure, I'd do it. <laughs> Why wouldn't I do it if I knew I was going to win? Brothers and sisters, we're in a war that we're going to win. It's not even in question. You know, we give Satan far much too credit. He's a real being. Yes, he has power. But you know what? He doesn't have power over us as believers. He's defeated foe. We preach Christ and him crucified. And him resurrected. That tells me that, you know what? I'm not going to wander around this earth for the rest of my life cowering in fear of something that can't hurt me. They can't harm me. They can't even touch me. Unless God allows it for some reason. We see that with Job, right? So we don't need to be intimidated. We, we are on the winning side here. And here he's saying they had pressures, they had conflict, they had all kinds of things going on in Philippi. And you can read all about that in Acts 16. We're not going to take time. They were beaten. They were put in stocks. And by the way, without cause, they were Roman citizens. They weren't allowed to do this to Roman citizens, and they did it anyway. And so he says, you know what? We came out of that kind of situation, and we landed in, in Thessalonica, and guess what? We didn't say, well, maybe we should go get permission from the government before we start preaching because we don't want the same thing to happen that happened in Philippi. We don't, we don't want to go through that again. No, Paul said, no, we're going to have boldness. The truth is on our side. And he says, we're even more bold now with you here in Thessalonica. It doesn't matter where the pressures come from. It doesn't matter where the afflictions come from. They're all different. I mean, in, in Philippi, he was arrested. They were put in jail. They were beaten unjustly by the Romans. But here in Thessal- Thessalonica, it wasn't the Romans. It was the Jewish leaders who did this to him. It was the Jewish leaders who didn't appreciate the message that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they were stirring up trouble everywhere. They even followed him after they left. Thessalonica, and went on to Berea. This group of Jews followed him and and, and harassed him there. Paul had to go through all kinds of stuff, this affliction, suffering all the time. But guess what? He says, God used it in my life and in my ministry to give me more boldness for the truth. Boldness is often the product of pressure and affliction that God brings to us. And in the midst of hard times, boldness from the Holy Spirit, who lives within us as believers, comes forth. But guess what? When you're proud, and you're self-sufficient, and you're arrogant, and when everything is, is going your way, and there's no suffering, there's no persecution, oh, you may look really bold, but guess what? Your boldness has not been tested. It has not been vetted. Boldness is when you are really being threatened, but you can still speak the truth, the truth of his name without fear. See, this is a very important message for us to understand, a passage for us to understand. Now, when it comes to verse 3, it gets a little touchy. 
He talks about the pressures that will reveal right motives, but then he moves on to the problems that undermine right motives. What are some of the problems? He lists four problems here. First of all, proclaiming God's truth without a heart for God and his glory. Verse 3, look at what he says. For our appeal, that word appeal, we, we, it, it's paraclesis, and it's exhortation. Appeal, exhortation. He says, our appeal to you does not spring from, and look at what he does. He lists off some things here. Error, impurity, or the attempt to deceive. Proclaiming God's truth without a heart for God and his glory. There's three things here that characterize a person that would do such a thing. The first one is error or or deviation. The Greek word is planus. P-L-A-N-E-S. We get the word planet from that word. You say, well, what does that mean? It means that when they were in the ancient times, they would look up the sky and they'd see planets and stars moving across the sky, just kind of out there wandering. That's really what the word means. It means to wander. And it's speaking of individuals who often wander from God's truth. They wander from what God says, and guess what? They come up with their own opinion. They come up with their own truth says, we didn't do that. We didn't spring our appeal, our exhortation to you does not come from error. I mean, talk about a commentary on our time in the church. He says, we didn't come to you, just so you know, with some wandering spirit trying to figure out what, what lights you up so we can appeal to you and just kind of say whatever comes to mind and make up our own opinion No, he says, our appeal stuck with what God said. It stuck with God's word. It's the word of God that came to you with power and in the Holy Spirit, as he said earlier in chapter 1. And first of all, he says it was without error or deviation. Secondly, it's without defilement, he says, or impurity. Some translations say it didn't come with impure motives or uncleanness. The reason it's bringing that up, it's saying basically that there's certain individuals who don't have a heart for God and still proclaim, make proclamations um, behind their remarks. It's basically their remarks are filled with evil. They're not filled with good. Even though it may look okay. I mean, there are plenty of people out there who are like this because they proclaim the truth with of God without a heart for God, without a heart for God's glory. And so what they do, they easily deviate from what the truth is, and they come up with their own opinions, and and it's motivated by pure evil. Maybe it's for their own fame. Maybe it's for their own glory. Maybe it's for the means of lining their pockets with your money. All you have to do is watch Christian TV anymore. It's sickening what's on there. And if, you ever, if you've watched it for any time, it's the same individuals. 
You know, they get up there on Christian TV and they start spouting all this stuff and then the government does an investigation and then they go away for a year and then they come back on and they repeat the same thing. I mean, some of them even go to prison and get out and come back and back to the same thing. Hucksters pushing their wares, saying enough truth to kind of tickle the ear, but it's pure evil. And it's easy to get corrupted in our own motives when you don't have a heart for God. When all you're doing is coming up with your own message and your own agenda instead of the Lord's, it's very easy. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to be involved in impurity or error. And thirdly here, he says we don't want to be involved in deception. Nor are we trying to trick you or deceive you, ways of deceit. People who want, who are false teachers and want to deceive you, their methods are intended to deceive you. They don't get on TV and say, hey, you know what? We want to rip you off so we can buy another $5 million mansion or a $40 million jet. They're not going to tell you that. They're intended to deceive you into thinking that they are right and their interpretations of Scripture are right. And that you can trust them. And they lift themselves up as some big authority figure. Please understand. I am not any authority whatsoever. Zero. Absolutely not. The authority belongs to who? It belongs to God. It belongs to his word. And whenever anyone is trying to preach or teach the word of God, and all of a sudden they make themselves the authority. I'm the sole authority. Either you listen to me or... uh, You better be careful. They've crossed the line. The motive is wrong. And it's easy to do. It's very easy to do. It's easy to cross that line. And we always have to be praying, Lord, help me, restrain me, right? Because, you know, as individuals in ministry, you are placed in a place of authority within the church as a pastor or an elder. That is a place of authority, but it's very easy to mistake that as your own authority. And pretty soon you're out there telling everybody what to do. No, no, no. We go back to the Word of God. Because if this book, beloved, is not true, what are we doing here? If this book is not true, let's go home. Let's stop playing church. I mean, I'm sure we can find something good to watch on TV. There's got to be some golf or something or go out on a hike or whatever. Let's stop this fiasco. Paul even wrote, if Christ is not risen from the dead, our preaching is what? In vain. What's he mean? It's a colossal waste of time. And we're still in our sins. I mean, praise God that He rose from the dead, right? Praise God that he's still not in the grave, that we're still not in our sins. Praise God that our preaching is not in vain. But as a pastor, I don't have any right to come up with my own interpretation or my own view of Scripture. I mean, there's a lot of guys that are doing that, and they're taking verses out of context and saying, well, I think this is what it means. This is my interpretation, they'll tell you. 
Well, I'm here to tell you there's only one interpretation of Scripture. One and only one. It's the interpretation that God originally intended when these words were written by the power of God through men. And if you understand that interpretation, then maybe you can apply it in different ways. But there's only one interpretation. Don't ever tell anybody, oh, your interpretation of Scripture is wrong. You know, my interpretation is right. (laughs) Because there's only one. It can only mean one thing. You know, if I say the sky is blue, you could say, well, I don't agree with you. It doesn't matter. You walk outside and the sky is blue. Okay. I mean, you can argue, oh, well, that's not my interpretation of it. It's, it doesn't matter. <laughs> See, either this, this book is true or it's not. There's a lot of people ripping verses out of context, putting it in a neat little TV format with a nice little booklet, and, and it's very entertaining. And what they're doing is they're manipulating the Word of God, and they're selling the public something that is absolutely false. And they have wrong motives to begin with. And we have to be aware of that. Let's not be naive. I'm amazed how many times that Paul in his writings brings up this issue over and over again. He's constantly talking about people who take the word of God and they deviate from it just slightly, but they deviate from it and they have wrong motives, they have impure motives, and they start deceiving you. He brings it up over and over and over again to these letters that he's writing to these new churches. They make themselves out to be the authority. And they manipulate people under their authority. We don't have any place for that here. In 2 Corinthians 4.2, Paul says this, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul says, I'm not in the business of tampering with God's truth. See, so many people, you know, I've used this before too, but, you know, we're just a waiter. You know, we go to the kitchen, we get the, the meal from God, and we take it to the table, and we lay it before the people. If they don't eat it, that's not my problem. Well, maybe I could add some sugar, <laughs> or maybe a little spice, a little salt. You know, that cook, he doesn't know what he's doing. And pretty soon, you have a complete different presentation of a meal than what the original cook intended. And that's what happens. When you deviate from the truth. And that's why in Ephesians 4, it, it tells us that God gave us apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So that you won't be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Sometimes people ask me, what do you think, I mean, do you think like people like Joe Olstein and Benny Hinn and all these guys, do you think they're sincere? Yeah, they're sincere. They want your money. They're very sincere. But there's some truth in what they say. Oh, sure, they may read a Bible verse, and that's true. 
But make no bones about it. I mean, they, they, they are out for one thing. To deceive you and to take what you have and make it theirs. And it doesn't come from God. And so we need to be aware of that. We need to call it out. We have no right to reinterpret what God has already said. There's only one interpretation of the Bible, the one God intended for it to be. Nothing more, nothing less. We need to stick to the word. Well, secondly here, we'll just go through this one, then we'll end. Not just proclaiming God's truth without a heart for God and his glory, but verse 4 there, it tells us that we have to be careful of this problem that arises, pleasing men rather than God. (laughs) Pleasing men rather than God. Verse 4, he says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men or man, but to please God who tests our heart. See, your, your motivations can really get messed up big time when you're trying constantly to please man and not God. Galatians 1.10 says, For I am now seeking the approval, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's pretty honest. <laughs> Or Colossians 3.22. Paul talks about here even in the workplace. He says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. See, there's a lot of men today in ministry who have a desire, a deep desire to please people. Their, Their number one desire is to be liked. To tell them what they think they want to hear rather than what they need to hear from God. I mean, there are many things in the Bible that are a blessing to us, right? Many things. But there's also a lot of things in the Bible that are very uncomfortable, that are very hard, that are not comfortable to read, that are not comfortable to study or even to preach. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times when we've been going through a book of the Bible and... We come to a text of scripture and it's like, I wish I didn't have to teach this. First of all, it's very convicting to my own heart. But then I got to stand in front of other people knowing that I'm not perfect in this area. And then exhort you. I mean, think about it. It's hard sometimes. But it's the truth. And so it's important to please God, not men. And that's even when it comes to our work, as he pointed out there in chapter Three of Colossians, verse 22. He says, we, we serve God. We don't just do it as men pleasers. We serve Christ the Lord. Our reward will come from him. But many of us, we're easily offended. We're easily turned back. Why? Because we're trying to please people rather than God. You know, we often hear the, the phrase, right? You can't please all the people all the time, right? But there's a lot of people in ministry who try. And, and nobody wants to be turned down. Nobody enjoys um, having to not please people. I mean, we, we're not out there just to be an offense to everybody. And I, I think I've been in ministry long enough to experience some wonderful people, some wonderful folks 
who do not care for me. They don't care for me. They don't care for my personality. They don't care for my teaching style. They don't care for my messages. And some of them, frankly, have even made it known to me they don't care for my wife or my family. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody. It strikes to your heart. I mean, I want people to be happy with what I'm doing. But you know something? I've learned something, and I continue to learn this, that you have to please God, not men. That has to be your focus. Because some things, it's, it's hard to accept. I mean, I believe in, in, in comforting the afflicted. Don't, don't get me wrong. But sometimes, I also believe we have to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> We have to light a fire under them. Sometimes God's word blasts us. Just as in our face, it's like a fire hose. It hits us right between the eyes. And it's not comfortable. But the truth of the matter is, is sometimes we're way off base. We're not following God's word. And there's a lot of tough things that we have to receive. And we have to give from God's word. Are we trying to please men or are we trying to please God? Well, he says they're approved by God for their ministry with a sacred trust. Approved by God. It means a testing of purified metals. It's a stamp of approval. It's in the perfect tense. It means that they have been approved. Paul was tested. He was found valid. It has a lasting approval is the idea. God had validated and continued to approve Paul's ministry. He wasn't really concerned with what people thought. That's why he says it's required of stewards that they be found what? Faithful. Not well-liked, but faithful. It's a sacred trust. Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, For if I do this on my own will, I have a reward. But if not my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. He's talking about the preaching of the gospel. It's a necessity for him. It's something God called him to do. Please men rather than God. And you will destroy whatever ministry you have. That's for sure. Well, also they were accountable to God. They were accountable to God. Not only approved by God, but they were accountable, he says, but to please God who tests our hearts. In Hebrews 4.13, the writer says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, from God's sight. No creature is. You may think you're hiding from God. You're not. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We all one day, beloved, will stand before God, naked and exposed. No excuses, just the truth. God knows us. He knows everything about us. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're doing and why we're doing it. I mean, some of us, we can look very pleasant (laughs) on the outside. We're smiling. But you know what? God sees the ugliness. He sees the wickedness that resides in our own hearts. Even though our thoughts toward people, we're constantly judging, evaluating them, what they're doing, why they're doing it, whatever it is. God says, you know what? Leave that up to me. Leave that up to me. They're accountable to God 
And Paul knew it. Well, let's close there and we'll close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And we do thank you that you're a God who does see our motives. You see what we do, why we do it, how we do it, when we do it. You see everything about it. Lord, you know what we're thinking even now. And Father, we all stand before you, naked and exposed. Father, we pray that each one here this morning understands what it means to put their faith or trust in Christ, to have their sins forgiven, to turn from their sin, but turn to the Savior, to recognize that they can't work long enough and hard enough to secure salvation in heaven for all eternity with you. It doesn't work that way. It it comes by means of a gift, a gift that you have given to us. And I pray that each one of us here has accepted that gift. If you haven't, today is the day. You, you tell God, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner. I need salvation. I, I want to put my faith and trust in Christ. I believe that he came here. He lived on earth. He died on a cross. He was raised the third day in victory over sin and death. I want that Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I don't want to continue to carry this burden by myself trying to earn my way, because that won't work. What are you going to do with Jesus? Look to Jesus. Look to the Savior. Trust in him this morning. As believers, I pray that we would be encouraged to be bold in our faith, that we wouldn't cower in this toxic culture in which we live, but we would stand up boldly for the truth and share the gospel like we believe it, like it can really change lives, like it has our own and continues to do so. And we pray that you would, we would see many souls come to Christ as a result of our efforts here in Redwood City through this church, through this ministry. We pray for our fellowship time across the way as well, that you just bless it. Thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen. Let's stand. We'll close with one last song.